It's Tuesday, June the 2nd, and we're studying 2 Peter. We're in 2 Peter chapter 3, which we've noted some distinction between chapter 2 and the false teachers and those that are all out mocking and scoffing against Christianity here in chapter 3. And we've had a little bit of what they were scoffing about, and that was in 2 Peter chapter 3, the return of Christ. They're saying, well, Everything's gone on the way it's been before, ever since the fathers fell asleep, that they're continuing on as they were from the beginning of creation. Well, that becomes the touchstone here or the launching pad, the springboard for a response here, a inspired God-breathed commentary on that kind of mocking and people who make those kinds of statements. So let's read that. We'll really get half of this sentence, but all of this verse, verse number five. For they deliberately, here's our passage, they deliberately overlook this fact, as long as we're talking about creation. The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And we're going to take a look at the rest of that tomorrow in verse 6, but let's just deal with this verse right here. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, and we're dealing out here about creation, that it was exist, that it existed, that it was brought into existence, that when it was formed, it was made, it was fashioned. And so this is the deliberate overlooking, and that's the first thing we need to deal with here in verse number 5. For they deliberately overlook, and that's an interesting juxtaposition of two words, overlook, Seems a lot like something like, oops, didn't mean to do that. Uh, you know, that wasn't my fault. I just overlooked it. But you add this word to it and you describe it as a deliberate overlooking and you start to get the picture of theology regarding what we as human beings do in light of things that we know. We know the truth, the Bible says, and yet we deliberately overlook it. That's a general statement about people, although we're all exposed to different levels of information about God and the truth of God in the written text of Scripture and how that's communicated to us around the world or here in our culture. We all have some basic fundamental things that speak to God and His truth that the Bible says if we don't respond to it, it's not that we just didn't get it or we didn't have enough information or we, you know, we, we accidentally overlooked it. This passage here in Romans chapter 1 reminds us that this is all a deliberate overlooking. If you can combine those two words, which of course are combined here in our passage. Romans chapter 1 verse 18, you'll remember this, the wrath of God or the anger of God, the just anger of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the un and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, which is a key concept in the Bible, here's what they do in their unrighteousness. They suppress the truth. That is a deliberate sense of saying, I know it's there, but I'm suppressing it. And the example that's given here in verse 19, the things that they know and the things that are plain to them is the fact that God has revealed it to them. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them, an active showing. According to Psalm 19, it's a regular, ongoing speaking of God, in this case, through nature, through creation. The invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, verse 20 says, and His divine nature have been clearly perceived. It's there. They know it's there ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. You look around and you can see it. As I often say, you see the beauty of creation. You see the symmetry and order of the cosmos, and you recognize something about yourself that doesn't measure up, and you see something of God's power. You see something of God's nature, and you perceive that just by looking at creation. Uh, so the point is they know so much that if they are to be condemned, they're without excuse. There is no excuse because they knew God. They had all this information about God. It was enough for them to be held culpable and accountable because they did not then seek to turn and honor God nor give him thanks for what he has done uh, in creation in this case. But they became futile in their thinking. doesn't mean they're not thinking people, but they're foolish thinking people. Their foolish hearts 
were darkened and they get into all kinds of speculation because they have, here's the key, suppress the truth and they do it because they have an agenda in their unrighteousness. That's the stubbornness of our heart that causes us to deliberately overlook God's truth. God sends his messengers, God sends his prophets, just like we've seen in 2 Peter, and it is mocked, it is maligned, it is scoffed. And in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 23, he says this is a willful thing. They did not listen, speaking of those who did not listen to the prophets in the Old Testament, nor did they incline their ear. But they, this is now, the I mean, the assumed subject here is the they of this passage. They stiffened their neck. That's a purposeful, willful thing. The subject of that phrase is these people who weren't listening. It wasn't that they just overlooked it or didn't get it or they just didn't hear it. I didn't understand it. No, they willfully stiffened their neck, which is the old Hebrew idiom of being stubborn. They did that so that they wouldn't hear it and they wouldn't receive the instruction. This is willful, just like it will be at the end of time. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, in the end of this era, in this, this uh, church age, the Bible says... During this tribulation, there's going to be a lawless one, an antichrist, that will come by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. I don't believe this is anything that's happened in the first century or any other time. These are supernatural things described in the book of Revelation with this world leader. And it says, with all the wicked deception, and you can say, well, there it is. They're all just all deceived. It was just they're, they're victims of all this. Their deception of those who are perishing, here's why they're deceived, because they, and here's, a, here's the key word, they refused they refused to love the truth and so be saved. That was a willful decision on their, on their part. Verse 11, therefore God sends them a strong delusion. I mean, there's a compounding of it, no doubt about that, like Pharaoh hardening his heart and then God hardening his heart. There is a sense in which our culpability and guilt before God is compounded, even as it says in Romans chapter 1, as God turns us over to that foolish, darkened speculation and thought and, and intelligence, right? We engage in all these things separated from God because God turns us over, turns us over to them. Anyway, the strong delusion comes through this lawless one at the end of time, this time of Jacob's trouble, I believe, so that they may believe what is false in order that they may be condemned, uh, all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had, here's the key, pleasure and unrighteousness. Much like Romans chapter 1, they suppress that truth in their unrighteousness, in their love for it, in their desire to have it, in their prioritization of doing what they wanted to do. So here is the principle and the concept we see throughout the scripture of deliberately overlooking. Well, what do they deliberately overlook when they deny the fact that Christ is going to come back? Well, the first thing he lists here is the creation of the world. Uh, they overlook this fact. What's the fact? That the heavens, that means the sky and outer space, existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by, here's the key phrase, it'll be repeated by the word of God. Now, it's not as though there's a word that you can hear when God speaks the creation into existence in Genesis chapter one, right? He doesn't have a mouth, doesn't have tongue, doesn't have vocal cords, there's no ear, you know, three bones in the inner ear of angels listening. Uh, this is obviously an anthropomorphic way to describe God uh, in, intentionally expressing his will as we do when we speak. We make a decision, we say something. God says something. That's a metaphorical way to speak of the fact that he willfully decides to do something. And that's how it's depicted for us in Genesis chapter one. Look at verse three. And God said, let there be light. And guess what? Bam. Because God is God, what he says happens, right? There was light. Verse six, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. He says it, it happens. 
Verse 9, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and the land, let the dry land appear. Uh, verse 11, And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation. All of this, we know this, and it was so. God says it, and it happens. And what does that mean? He expresses his will. He decides something. He volitionally states something, just like we've seen the volitional activity of sinful humans refusing the truth. God, in the beginning of time, shows that he can speak something into existence. He can speak and have things happen. And the examples in our passage are going to be creation, which we're dealing with now, uh, the flood, and then the coming judgment, which is going to be preceded with Christ coming to receive his church. So God is going to come and Christ is going to return. As the Bible says in John 14, he's going to go prepare a place. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again. That's the promise. And God can do that with a word. Christ, of course, even is called the word, the expression of God. And there's so much to this we could go on and on. It's not just some, you know, Grecian philosophy that is built into this uh, passage in, in John chapter 1, as so many commentaries like to toy around with, the idea of the Logos. I mean, this is a thoroughly Old Testament concept, the idea of God speaking. And, you know, it started there in Genesis chapter 1. But the expression of God, right, this second person of the Godhead, right, the word was with God. I'm sorry, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. Again, we've already seen the depiction of that. God says, and then it happens. So Christ is the agency of creation. And without Him, and we know this, by the way, from verse number 14, which says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? That's the whole theme here in John chapter 1, the Word is Christ. And, and it says, without Christ was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He's the giver of life. He is the all-powerful, uh, almighty, life-giving person, the second person of the Godhead. So just make this distinction uh, only because in Scripture, when Christ comes on the scene, he does the same thing that's happening in creation. He says things, and they happen. He speaks things into existence. Mark chapter 2, verse 10 he says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins because they're standing around saying, wait a minute, you said to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven, how can you do that? Uh, because you're questioning that, he says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, right? Again, he speaks a word, which is the, the volitional decision to have something happen. In this case, he's incarnate, so he moves his tongue and his vocal cords and breathes out air. People hear it, but it's a action of his will. And in the action of the will, he says, pick up your bed and go home. And guess what happens? He rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. And they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Or even here, and he ramps up the volume in John 11, verses 43 and 44. Uh, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Here's a dead man, right? He's rotting in a grave three days after his death. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his faith face and his face wrapped with a cloth. So here Jesus is showing with the word of his power, he can call things into existence. He gives life as he wills, as we've seen in the gospel of John. And they recognize that the will and volition and authority of God here, the God incarnate, the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. Only Matthew 8, 8, say the word and my servant will be healed. I know you can speak something into existence, as he does in creation, with an appearance and history of maturity and age that it never had time to achieve, right? That is the word of his power, creating something out of nothing. We see it in Luke chapter 4. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him, speaking to the demon. And when the demon had thrown him down, this is Luke 4, 35, he came out of their midst, uh, I'm sorry, threw him 
And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? What are you talking about? This expression of authority. For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Speaks a word, and it happens. And that's the whole point of our context here, is it's very, very simple for the Godhead to make a decision and implement something as crazy as it might seem, like commanding demons to go somewhere, or having someone who is healed be well, or someone who's dead come to life or to come back and invade the world and set up a kingdom. Those things can be done by a very simple word of God. Now, what's this phrase here? The earth was formed out of water and through water. Just touch on that before we're done here. You see in the very beginning of the Bible, it gives us this statement that God created the heavens and the earth, right? The space and the sky and the, the land. Now, here's how he does it though. In verse two, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. That's the waters, right? Covers 70% of the, the earth right now, at least, after the flood. And it says, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So what's this all about? And uh, I would recommend to you that it's about, as best we can determine, God can make the world any way he wants and decide to make it as he does over six days. But there's a lot of this going on, a lot of forming and fashioning. And the Lord formed the man out of the dust of the ground. And he says here in Genesis chapter 1 to the man and the woman, he says, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven. These ideas of dominion and subduing are exactly what God does with creation. He doesn't speak a word and have everything come into existence at one time. He starts here by creating uh, hydrogen and oxygen, at least in the discussion of what's over the cover of this earth with all the materials that are there, and he starts fashioning and shaping it. Matter of fact, you want the third person of the Godhead right here in Genesis chapter chapter 1, verse 2, the Spirit of God was hovering over like hands in a, in a pottery class, getting that shape of that vessel. There is that sense of God actively engaging in forming things. Well, that is the picture here, the pattern of us doing what God did. God is laying down that pattern. Six days you shall do your work, Exodus chapter 23, verse 12, and the seventh day you shall rest. It's all about the work that we're doing, the subduing and the dominion over things. He says, and have your ox and your donkey, have them rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien, let them be refreshed. Okay, so this is all about rest and refreshment based on the fact that six days a week you're doing your work. He says over in Exodus 20, the seventh day is the Sabbath, which means rest, to the Lord your God. And on it you shall do no work, your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, your livestock or the sojourner, the traveler who is within your gates. For six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The point is the picture of creation is the picture of our working and fashioning the existing materials of this planet. So God starts by creating. Again, why does he do it? It's just how he did it. He creates this world. He starts with water. Even those statements I read there in chapter 1 of Genesis, chapter verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, verse 12, those verses give us that sense that water here is part of the crafting nature of God. God starts with that, and he uses that, the earth. Of course, there's more than just hydrogen and oxygen there to create and fashion. And he does that and then presents it as a pattern. Now you go submit and sub, or, uh, subdue rather and exercise dominion and create things for good and fashion things into usefulness on this earth. And 
I want you to do that for six days a week and on the seventh day rest. God didn't need rest and he certainly didn't need to fashion things out of water. Some people talk about ancient Near Eastern myths that are reflected in the Bible by the world being created out of the chaos of water and the seas and all that. That is not the point here. God could have done anything he wanted to. Uh, the realities of how he came to create the world out of water, through water, is a picture for us, I believe, because the pattern in Scripture of us learning how to take raw materials and make something useful out of it, which is the pattern even of our work week in one way or another, uh, whether it's labor or intellectual uh, development or whatever it might be, creativity, all of these things are expression of God. Now, more on all this later because that becomes the theme for the next verse when we talk about the deluge or the flood, and we'll get to that tomorrow. Thanks for tuning in today. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 5. That's a lot of information, but tomorrow we're back to verse 6, and we'll see you then.